We are indeed in Luke chapter 1. If you guys were here with us on Christmas Eve, this was part of our reading for that service, the prophecy that comes to Zechariah talking about his son, John the Baptist, who is going to be the forerunner of Jesus at his birth at Christmas. So I'm going to read for us from Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 67. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers, and to remember his holy covenant the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of his salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God whereby the sun shall, rise, shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Let's pray together. Father, do these things for us. Show us this Christmas mercy that has been promised from of, of old and delivered to us in your son. Let us feel it this morning, your tender mercy towards us in Christ. We ask in his precious name, amen. Well, friends, that prophecy is a mouthful. It's actually a single Greek run-on sentence for that entire way. And so this is the prophecy that's given to Zechariah, who's talking about his son, John the Baptist, who is talking about Jesus who is to come. And I want to seize on the word mercy here. It's a beautiful word, and it occurs in verses 72 and again in verse 78, because mercy is such a, a big, rich word, and Luke grabs that word, and he co-ops it for Christmas. So we throw around the word mercy all the time within our faith. Actually, the word mercy occurs 27 times in the New Testament, which if you had asked me earlier, I would have thought that sounded like a low number for such a big word in the Bible, about one time per book, except that Luke is the one that grabs a hold of that word and he uses a fifth of all of its New Testament occurrences just in Luke chapter 1, just surrounding Jesus' birth. So when Luke thinks about that word mercy, he says, yeah, we're going to take that word and we're going to use it for Christmas. Christmas is God's mercy. God's mercy at Christmas is in his son, Jesus. But how do we define that word? I mean, we throw it around, we use it with each other. How do we define the word mercy biblically? Now, when I hear that word, the first thing that comes to mind, and maybe this says a lot about my childhood, is sitting on top of my younger brother and punching him in the shoulder until he cries mercy, right? I mean, that's what comes to mind when I think about mercy, and I will see counselor later about that. But the word mercy can mean, please stop punching me, right? That's a legitimate definition for mercy. 
Another thing I think about when I hear the word mercy is a sentence that I've heard other people use that I use when we're thinking about biblical grace and biblical mercy. Maybe you've heard people say, grace is giving us what we don't deserve and mercy is withholding something that we do deserve, right? Have you ever heard that being distinguished in that way? Like like grace is a gift, but mercy is withholding something that we should have otherwise had. So both of those definitions that I used are all about withholding pain and punishment, whether it is deserved or undeserved. That's kind of what comes to our minds when we think about the word mercy. Well, now that I've done a little digging, I'm not so sure that's its only meaning. It can certainly mean that, please stop, but it can also mean so much more. You guys remember Jesus is telling the story of the Good Samaritan, right? Where Uh, There was a man on the road to Jericho and he was jumped, beat up severely, left in a ditch to die. A couple of people pass him by, don't do anything. And then along comes a Samaritan who sees him, who, who binds him up, heals his wounds, carries him into an inn, puts him there, pays all of his expenses. And Jesus tells that story and says, who was the neighbor to this man? And the original young man who had asked the question to begin with says, I think it was the one who showed mercy. Luke chapter 10, verse 37. Mercy, it was the one that showed mercy. The good Samaritan wasn't about to punish this man. Mercy here is something totally different. It's not just withholding punishment. It's compassionate, lavish, generous kindness towards another person. That can be mercy as well. Mercy can feel like a stranger's unexpected compassion in our greatest hour of need. That's what mercy felt like to the man who was beat up in the ditch. It felt like incredible compassion. So when we think about the, mercy, the word mercy that shows up two times in this prophecy, I want to have that in the back of our minds as we walk through this because that's the spirit of the word that we're exploring in our passage. And I just want to see two points here, and that is mercy promised and mercy delivered. Mercy has been promised to us, and now mercy has been delivered to us. That's what we're going to look at in Zechariah's prophecy. Now think about mercy promised. Look at verse 70. As he spoke by the mouth of the prophets from old, verse 72 and 73, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. Do you see all those words describing mercy on the way? That mercy is about to be delivered spoke through the prophets, promised to our fathers, remembered in the covenant, sworn by an oath. God always keeps his promises. God always keeps his promises. When God makes a promise, he keeps it every time without fail. That's what Jesus means when he says about God, Your word is truth. Not just true, not just it can be validated with truth. God, your word is truth itself. That's what the Proverbs mean when it says that every word of God is flawless. 
That's what Isaiah means when he says the word of the Lord, it stands forever. You can take every promise of God to the bank. It is sure. Now, when God did swear that oath to Abraham, which you'll remember was way back in the beginning of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 12, there was still going to be 2,000 years of history and there was going to be 800 pages of Bible story between the time that God gives that oath to Abraham and the time that Jesus is actually born in Bethlehem. That gives us a ton of time to wonder if God could actually keep his promise, would actually keep his promise, even remembered that he had made a promise two millennia ago. A group of us were joking about the friend in every group that likes to make plans like a little too far out. You know what I'm talking about? They like to plan way ahead And so they're like, hey, you want to go to the movies? And it's like, awesome, when? February. Let's go in February. And it's like, what? February, okay, yeah, that sounds great. Well, February rolls around. There's lots more better stuff to do than go to the movies. But the friend holds you to it because you said 60 days ago you were going to the movies. Now you're going to the movies and you're stuck. We all have a friend like that. But the rest of us realize A lot can change in 60 days, man. A lot can change in two months. And the whole situation is different by the time we get to February. Well, a lot can change in 2,000 years. A lot in history, a lot in time, a lot in God's relationship to people. And so between the time that God made this promise and the time we expect this promise to unfold, a lot has happened And the great and glorious news of Christmas is that God actually remembered and God actually kept the promise that he had made so, so long ago. Now, speaking of remembering, I'm sure all of us remember every sermon in our Old Testament series, right? We preached through the Old Testament series a year ago, and and we've got that on lockdown. We know what we preached on, especially when we got to Daniel, because we kind of camped out in Daniel for two weeks, and we talked about Daniel's prayer life. And we saw that Daniel does something that a lot of other um, biblical people do, and that is... When he hears promises from God, he remembers those promises and he prays them back to God, almost as if to remind God of the promises that he had made. It's an incredible aspect of Daniel's prayer life that we could all use in our prayer life. God says something, God promises something, we hold on to that, we pray it back to God and we say, God, you said you were going to do this. You said you would bring your people back to the promised land in 70 years. And so, Daniel does that as part of his prayer life. And we were kind of joking back then, but we said that our kids could teach us something about this because our kids get this intuitively. Our kids understand that you can forget a lot of stuff in life, but if you remember every passing promise that your parents make in or out of their right minds, you can take that thing to the bank. I mean, that's worth money to remember your parents' promises. So you might forget to wear your shoes to school in winter. 
but you will not forget something that your parents have told you that they're going to do, right? And so the three dreaded words that every father will hear at one point or another is, Dad, you said. Dad, you said. Dad, you said you're going to get us a puppy. What? I said that? I'm allergic to dogs. Why would I say I'm going to get you a puppy? Dad, you said. All right, get in the car. We're going to PetSmart. We're getting a puppy. Swing by CVS and get a lifetime supply of Zyrtec because I'm allergic to it. But dad, you said, that's on lockdown and that's what Daniel does in his prayer and that's essentially what Zechariah is celebrating in his prophecy. Dad, you said, you swore with an oath. You made a covenant. You promised from of old through the prophets. You promised mercy. Dad, you said. So mercy has been promised, and whatever is promised, we can fully expect, point number two, that this mercy will be delivered. If the Old Testament was God's mercy promised in Jesus, then the New Testament is God's mercy delivered in Jesus. So we're looking forward to that mercy that's promised in the Old Testament. We are receiving and reveling in it in the New Testament in Jesus. Now I want you to notice something striking about the prophecy because all throughout this prophecy, there's a ton of activity, right? There's a lot that's going on. There are a lot of verbs like visiting and speaking. All that's happening everywhere in every other line within this prophecy. But the thing I want you to notice that is most striking about it is that almost every single verb in Zechariah's prophecy is God's and not ours. All the action in this prophecy is God's action towards us and not our action towards God. So if you hear the good news of salvation, that God has come to redeem sinners, and you say, that's great, what does God bring to the table, and what do I bring to the table? I want to know what this contractual agreement looks like, and what he's responsible for, and what I'm responsible for. You can bust out a whiteboard, you can make two columns, and you can say God's column, and you can say man's column, and under God's column, I count 16 verbs. And under man's column, I count one. God's action. Prophesy, visit, redeem, raise, speak, save, show, remember, promise, swore, grant, deliver, call, visit, give, guide. Man's column. Verse 74. Serve. <laughs> like once all of this has happened on your behalf, you live a life of thanksgiving in service to God. Does that not put the gospel in tremendous perspective for us? The Christmas gospel is the story of God finding us, not us finding God. It's the story of God delivering mercy to us, not us earning God's mercy. It's the story of God condescending to us in the incarnation, not us working our way back up to God. All the verbs are God's. All the action is God's. This is God's movement to us in his love. 
Now, I want you to imagine a scene on Christmas night. And maybe this is too close to home. Maybe this actually happened on Friday to you. But you have just finished the marathon that is Christmas month and Christmas day. And I mean, you decorated, you got a tree, you set it up, you bought presents, you wrapped presents, you gave all your kids money so that they could get their siblings presents, and then you drove them to the store and told them what to get and wrapped it for them so they were able to give presents to each other. And then you were quarantining, and then you were triangulating how to spend a COVID Christmas outdoor on the coldest day ever. And then you fist fought someone in Publix for the last pack of ribeyes. And then you sat with your in-laws and you smiled at all their passive aggressive comments about your parenting. And you cooked and you cleaned and you got everybody in bed and you just collapsed on the couch exhausted from the sweet holiday that is Christmas. (laughs) And as you're laying there, half conscious, Your five-year-old comes out of their room, jumps in your lap, looks up at you and says, we put on a pretty good Christmas today, didn't we? (laughs) Wasn't that good? We did a good job. And you want to say in the flesh, we put on Christmas? We put on Christmas? Son, I put on Christmas. I made Christmas happen. I am the reason for this season. I put on Christmas. You can't smell, spell Christmas with we. There is an I in Christmas, and as me, I did this, okay? Well, Saint, our Heavenly Father has a million opportunities to say as much to us, only He does it so much more softly and kindly in the gospel. He says to us, I put on Christmas. Check the verbs in Zechariah's prophecy. That was me planning this from of old and bringing it to fruition. I give, you receive. I do, you respond in thanksgiving. There's no we in Christmas. It is the heavenly father who has delivered this glorious gospel to us. That's the gospel. That's the good news. Now, verse 78 says that all this movement from God to us is motivated by one thing and one thing alone. It's my favorite line in the prophecy. It says, because of the tender mercy of our God. That's why he did this. For God so loved the world that he sent his son. Zechariah says, because of the tender mercy of our God, he sent his son. And I just want to close with two points about God's mercy here. Number one, just like we said at the beginning, mercy is so much more than withholding punishment. Mercy is not like we are looking down the barrel of our punishment and at the last minute we hear this good news. It is that, but it's not only that. Look at all the manifold descriptions of what mercy feels like throughout this prophecy. Verse 77 says that mercy feels like a mind opening up to know God for the very first time. Verse 74 says mercy feels like deliverance from our enemies. Verse 77 says it feels like being forgiven the whole of our sin. Verse 79 says mercy feels like the sun rising on our darkness. 
It feels like a man being beaten and in a ditch by the side of the road. Mercy feels like a stranger's unexpected kindness in our greatest hour of need. That's what the gospel feels like. It's mercy. But the second thing I want to say is that God's mercy is not just a decision on his part. Instead of just saying, hey, I thought up mercy or I decided to do mercy, God instead uses language that describes emotion that is coming from the deepest part of himself. That phrase in verse 78, tender mercy, that's really an English euphemism. The the word tender that's translated in our Bibles is really the Greek word for bowels or intestines, okay? So we actually read that word in our Acts series in Acts chapter one. Judas hung himself, his body was flung down, burst open, and all his tender spilled out on the ground. That's Acts chapter one. You see, in our worlds, when we think about like the seat of emotions where we feel things and where all those lovey-dovey, fuzzy, warm feelings come from, there's no way really to describe that. So we just picked an internal organ, which is kind of odd. And we all somehow agreed in the West that the heart would be it. And that would be the seat of emotions. And we describe loving people from the heart. I love you from the bottom of my heart. We say on Valentine's Day cards, and then we draw something that doesn't even look like a heart. And that communicates love to us, right? That's what we've agreed on. That's in the West, but if you came from the Hebrew worldview, for whatever reason, they did not choose the heart. They chose the bowels. That is the seat of warm affection (laughs) and emotion. I mean, isn't that great to think about uncovering a Hebrew Valentine Day card thousands of years later? Baby, I love you from the bottom of my bowels. You move my bowels. Okay, I'm going to stop with that. There's actually a a Puritan pastor, Richard Sibbs, who has a whole sermon series entitled Bowels Opened. And it's all about the love of Christ. Isn't that beautiful that he did that? Well, you say tomato, I say tomato. You say heart, I say bowels. At the end of the day, what we're trying to describe is emotion that feels visceral, right? Like, I'm not talking about just the decision to do something. I hope as human beings, we have all experienced an emotion that it feels like it comes from within, somewhere else outside of us, inside of us, that is propelling us towards something. And think about this. God, who has no body, he's a spirit, he doesn't have a heart, he doesn't have bowels or intestines, He chooses this language to describe what's going on here. He says, I have a mercy for my people. I have a lavish kindness for my people that's not simply a decision in my mind. It comes from within me and it moves towards them in this kind, tender heartedness. God's mercy the mercy that he promised from of old, the mercy that he delivered in Jesus to us arrives among us as this lavish, unexpected kindness from the depth of God himself. Let's pray together.
Lord, this gospel feels too, too lavish, too rich, too kind, too overflowing with mercy. We praise you, Lord, that you would even stoop to describe yourself in such a way to say that your mercy for us comes from within, flowing out of you through your Son and onto us this Christmas. I pray that we would get our one verb right, that we would open up our hands and receive your movement to us, and we would respond in happy thanksgiving. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.